MSW Media. This week, we learned about states engaging in practices that would limit voting in the upcoming midterm elections. Georgia Secretary of State Brian Kemp, a candidate for governor, removed 53,000 registered voters from the rolls who were predominantly African-American. In North Dakota, their state Supreme Court recently allowed a new rule to take effect that would deny the vote to anyone without an ID that shows a street address. Many Native Americans in that state do not have a street address. As the midterm elections approach, what can be done to protect the right to vote in those states and the rest of the nation? And why are voting rights being curtailed? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name is Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a CNN legal analyst. And today I'm joined by a live audience here at the Georgetown Law Center. First, I'd like to call my friend Patty Vasquez, a comedian and WGN radio host who joins us regularly on the podcast. Hi, Patty. You there? I am here. I'm a little bit, I'm a little jealous that you're hanging out over there and I'm on the phone with you this time, but uh, thank you for asking me to join you. Absolutely. You should be jealous. We, we not only have some people here that are uh, excited to be part of this, but we also have pizza and, uh, and, and uh, lots of drinks. So much more, uh, much more fun than uh, being in the radio studio. I think it should be festive. I mean, when we're talking about disenfranchising voters, you've got to have something to balance that out. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, it's, 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 it's sad. It's, it's such a serious topic, but it's a topic that doesn't, that does not get as much attention as you might think. You know, a few weeks ago, you and I spoke to Matthew Miller, uh, the MSNBC contributor, uh, former DOJ spokesperson. And he said that Republicans in his mind had figured out that no one really cares about process, that if you're complaining about the process of how things work, that it really does not, uh, it's not something that voters get fired up about or pay attention to. And in his mind, he felt that Republicans had figured that out and, and as a result were doing what they could to attack the process. Uh, and I feel with this, with these recent stories that have come out, that, that kind of holds true. There's, there's not a lot of mainstream uh, interest or, or anger or, or outrage about um, these these stories that ultimately may result in less people voting. I think he has a point in the sense that when it comes to uh, having conversations, whether it's in social media or you know or regular media, you know people don't seem to jump on stories like this. But then we're left with like, who are the people that are going to continue to fight for the protection of voting rights? Right? Yeah, you can't necessarily write it off as well. People don't care about procedure. Well, someone has to care in order to at least hold the line somewhere. And and, and the thing is, that, you know, Republicans 
Republicans are really pushing this hard because so much of the uh, the voting population that that lives in areas that are you know maybe on reservations or in black neighborhoods, uh, you know th- those voters tend to vote Democrat, and you know the the more they can chip away at that because if we look at it, look, if we look at Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania in the 2016 election, what was it less than seventy eight thousand votes made the difference there? So the more you can chip away here and there, you know the more successful you might be in disenfranchising, you know, black voters, Latino voters, and uh, Native Americans, in this case, in North Dakota. Well, right. I had um, uh, friends, obviously, I I live in Chicago. I had friends who are up in Wisconsin uh, doing voter protection during the last election. We talked about how, told me about how the voter ID law that had changed there dramatically reduced um, the ability of people to vote there and talk to, to me about some really heartbreaking cases about, of people who had voted for many years who suddenly were not able to vote because of the new law that was passed. Because when laws are passed, it's not like uh, uh, an alert shows up on your iPhone that a, lo- that, an, uh, that a law got passed in the legislature. Let's, let's face it, most people have no idea what's going on uh, in their state capital, what laws are being passed and what laws are taking effect. Uh, and so, you know, you're, you're used to going to the same voting place to vote. And then suddenly uh, the rules have changed and it can be a surprise to you. And by the way, what, that, what would that alert look like on your iPhone? Would it be you've been purged? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, there's a movie, The Purge, right? Uh, that's, that's going on in some state voter rolls. Uh, and, 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 you know, it's interesting because I think people think of voting as a, a, such a core and central right. But as I'll discuss in more detail with our guests later, you know, there's no federal right to vote, the Supreme Court has said. And and in fact, voting is handled at the state and local level in the United States. So there are vastly different um, procedures in place in different states. There's different um, ways in which they maintain their voter records. There's different requirements that they have, uh, you know, that they often place on voters as to whether or not you're able to register or able to vote. And the voting machines can even be different district to district uh, or in state to state. Well, and, and you mentioned uh, what the, uh, you know, the, the state function is. I can't believe that Secretary of State Brian Kemp is doing his day job in order to help his, his aspirations. I mean, that's essentially what's going on in Georgia, is that he gets to fundamentally purge. Like, was it 53,000 votes he's purged? And 70% of those are black votes. And he's running against who might, someone who might possibly be the first black governor, uh, Stacey Abrams. Yeah, it's, it, is, it, is, it is really something. I, look, I just, for interest of full disclosure, I went to law school with Stacey Abrams. She's my classmate. You know, fantastic person. But, you know, somebody who is running uphill in a state like Georgia, um, you know, it's already, there. there's historically been a lot of roadblocks put on African-American voters to vote in Georgia. Um, you know, there was uh, one of the probably... Uh, in my mind, one of the most important laws in American history that was passed back in the 60s, the Voting Rights Act, uh, a portion of that was invalidated by the Supreme Court. You know, it was, it was a law that originally forced certain states, the former South, to have something called pre-clearance. They had pre-clear laws that would affect voting. They had pre-clear districts um, and that, that would have been drawn that might potentially disenfranchise African-American voters. Uh, and now that that has been done away with. And, you know, as a result, uh, you know, state governments and state officials in those states feel like they have a freer hand um, that might ultimately um, 
you know, result in, um, you know, to, to essentially to, to potentially suppress votes or at the very least to reduce the um, number of African-American voters. And, you know, something occurred to me, Renato, when I was looking at this story in Georgia is that they have something called exact match where you have to exactly match not just your date of birth, your address, so security number, but also names. And, I, and the volume of obviously the names on these lists, I, I was wondering how much we also don't take into account clerical er- errors. So if someone's standing there and there's one thing that's off, maybe the middle initial is different. They can be put on a pending hold. I think it's like 26 months where you're like on a, on a list where your voting status is questionable. And I and I also wondered like how much of that might be uh, cultural because you know whether you know in, I know in my family we traditionally use names differently. So there might be one record that's slightly different from another. And I just wonder how many of it you know that that's taken into account. Going you know what we can eliminate some of these voters by just making it more difficult for them to match exactly these records. Well, I think. All of us in our lives have had times where there's been little clerical errors. I know on my driver's license for years, it had a, a clerical error where instead of N for North, it had M just because somebody had typed it in incorrectly. And I wasn't going to waste my time from my perspective going back to the Secretary of State to change M to N on my street address. But in Georgia, that might have purged me from the voter rolls. Um, and, and I think all of it, anybody, whether you've invited people to a birthday party uh, or had wedding invitations go out or anything where you've had a mail merge, you know that sometimes you'll get duplicate names or things will be off because not every, you know, not every, you either make errors yourself or just things get, you know, uh, lost in translation or there, or sometimes you'll have, you'll have people's <laughs> names stored differently on your uh, iPhone versus your Outlook or whatever. Um, and, and yeah, and here the, the difference is someone's right to vote. You know, it's interesting because there are rights that we have that re- receive very heightened level of, of scrutiny in this country, some very important, some that might be less so. Um, but the right to vote, um, you know, it, it, you know, certainly there you, people can't be denied the right to vote because of their race or gender or their age. Um, but, um, you know, what, what we might call neutral, and I would put those in air quotes, uh, things that sound neutral, like voter ID, um, can can have a very significant effect that knock people off the voter rolls. Uh, and they have an effect on certain populations rather than others, which is why some politicians on one party or the other will have a vested interest in promoting certain policies that ultimately might reduce the vote. If you look at North Dakota, there with the push there is to make it harder for Native Americans to vote. And one of the re- restrictions that they have is that you must have a valid address. And a lot of Native Americans actually use P.O. boxes. They don't have what's considered a traditional land address. And, and this just changed since their primary. So that's just within the last few months. And a lot of people either won't know or have the time to be able to establish a permanent address. What they're telling them to do there is to register with their 911 center. And have the 911 center assign them what would be considered their geographical address. So they're making them jump through hoops there. And the big part of that is that Heitkamp only won by 3,000 votes in her last election. Last election. Yeah, it, it is. It's it, look in a state like North Dakota, North Dakota in particular, every vote matters. And there's no question that have, the requirement to have a street address is something that affects people. Uh, based on who you are and what your circumstances are. I mean, my dad lives in a trailer and, you know, he doesn't have, I send him mail on a PO box uh, because that's where he lives. Um, and, you know, if you had that requirement 
uh, in the state he lived in, uh, you know, he might be disenfranchised. So, um, you know, it's something that sounds um, that sounds neutral, but it's not. And in the law, we often talk about whether something is what's called facially neutral. In other words, the, the law itself says we don't want black people to vote versus uh, if the effect, if it has an impact on people differently. And what I think, you know, uh, folks have figured out is that a lot of times in some of these states, they can get away with laws that have a very significant impact difference, uh, what's called disparate impact, on one group rather than another uh, and get away with it, um, even though, um, you know, even though it has that impact because on, on its face, it sounds like a neutral law. Exactly. And that's the thing is that, that they're being very t- strategic in making these choices, whether it's uh, the conversation we're having about North Dakota and Georgia purging the rolls or making it much harder when people show up on Election Day or making the polling pa- places incredibly hard. I mean, there are places in this in this country where on average African-Americans wait longer at their polling places or the hours are shortened to affect people who work hourly, you know, work hourly Shifts. There's a city in Kansas where 60% of the voting population is Hispanic, and they have moved the polling place to a location that's not accessible by public transportation. So this continues on levels that fly under the radar. And uh, and again, it's uh, it's a surgical procedure, I think, in attempts to curb the ability of such certain populations to vote. Well, that's right. And you know, you brought up, um, for example, the length of lines, etc. You know, really, this is in part a feature of the fact that we have voting handled at the state and local level. So in Illinois, where you and I live, we have early voting. People can vote for weeks. Uh, They can go early and they can vote at their convenience. We have automatic voter registration. So when you go to get your driver's license renewed, you can just automatically be registered to vote. Uh, other states make it very difficult to register to vote, make it easy to get purged, as we've learned, you know, we we're discussing earlier today. And there are towns of 20 something thousand people that don't have a bowling place. You actually have to go out of town. Um, that was one of the recent uh, um, pieces of news that came about. So really, um, where you live uh, not only affects, you know, for example, quality schools in this country, which is itself an absolute tragedy. Uh, but it affects your ability to vote, which really affects everything else. Because when, when people ask about, you know, how do elections, I did a, a um, question and answer session on Twitter yesterday with uh, Chicago Votes, a, a, a local nonprofit. And people are asking, well, how, how can we impact this, this policy or that policy in, in voting? And, and the answer is really is getting, in that case, young people to vote. And um, if we impact um, in, a, in a disproportionate way, our, our ability to vote, what ultimately happens is the voices that are heard are, um, are uh, skewed. And there is a result, the policies are skewed as well. I, and, and it is at a time when people are getting more cynical about voting. I hate to see people discouraged even more. I mean, it, it seems to be so vulnerable right now. People are, are you know, adverse to it. They they one other. I've talked to listeners who say that they feel like their vote in 2016 didn't matter, whether it's because they live in a state where, you know, it's already going to go in one direction or they have friends who live in states where the Electoral College took over. So when you have, uh, you know, a person by person level, you, you want to encourage people, make it as easy as possible, as ex- I guess, as accessible as possible uh, rather than harder. Yeah, I think that's really how it should be. That's what we should be aiming for. Um, but, um, you know, obviously there's different, uh, there's different interests at stake here. So we have, a, a, I think, a Congress that's 
fairly uh, fairly unrepresentative, and I think there's some people who would like to keep it that way. So many great points. I, I, I wish I could hang out for the, the rest of the conversation that you have, but I, I feel like this disembodied voice with the group that you've got, and uh, it would be, I would hate to interrupt the uh, conversation you're going to be having about this incredibly important issue. Well, thanks for joining us, Patty. Let's bring in Hannah Freed, Executive Director of Access Democracy. She is the former National Director and Deputy General Counsel for Voter Protection in Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign. And before that, she was a Voter Protection Director for the Obama campaign and Deputy Counsel for Voter Protection at the DNC. Welcome, Hannah. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. All right. So you have, you know, you were here uh, listening uh, along with our live audience uh, to my conversation with Patty. And I I have the feeling that when folks are listening, one of the things that's going to seem weird to them is this idea that there's no federal right to vote. Um, Can you explain um, exactly how that is and what the status of voting rights are in the United States? Yeah. Yeah. So that that's right. Um, when we talk about voting, um, what we are really talking about is a process that is run by states and localities. So when you go to vote, you are entering into a process that your state oversees. And of course, there are federal elections, right? And there are federal laws that protect the right to vote to a greater or lesser extent over time. But at the end of the day, you are involved in a process that is run at the almost hyper-local level, sometimes down to municipality. And, you know, what can you explain what restrictions there are on the ability of states to limit voting, either voting registration or your ability to vote? Yes. So there are federal laws, the National Voter Registration Act from the 90s, the Help America Vote Act from the post-2000 era, going a little further back, Voting Rights Act passed in the 60s. There are protections against um, uh, processes that um, unfairly impact certain communities, right? The Voting Rights Act prevents racial discrimination in the context of voting. The National Voter Registration Act sets standards for how registration is administered and opportunities to register. The reason you get to register to vote when you go to the DMV is because of federal law. That said, as you alluded to earlier, Protections of the right to vote have been eroded in the last few years, notably with the Shelby County case, uh, which gutted a key provision of the Voting Rights Act in 2013. So, yeah, that was the Supreme Court case I mentioned earlier. I think it was five years ago. So can you explain what preclearance was and what what essentially was lost uh, as a result of that decision? Yes. So um, as part of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, there was a requirement that states and localities with a history of discrimination in voting, a particular and acute history of discrimination in voting, would have to get changes to their voting processes reviewed and okayed by the U.S. Department of Justice. And that process was critical in ensuring that communities that have long been disenfranchised in this country would not be, or that the risk of that would be mitigated. Um, Unfortunately, um, the Supreme Court decided in 2013 um, that circumstances had changed enough uh, in those states that the formula for determining which um, states and counties should be covered was outdated, and so the provision went out the window. And what we saw almost immediately was a rolling back of voting rights Um, Much like what you've described, a lot of it through bureaucratic seeming, closing polling locations, cutting early vote opportunities. But those decisions have 
huge, huge impact on the right to vote. And that's particularly true for communities of color. So one thing I think is interesting is putting the context, putting voting in this country in the context of how it is in the rest of the world. So uh, the United States has voters. I think voting participation is significantly lower than many other countries. Can you give us a sense of where the United States is in that and how voting differs in the United States versus in the rest of the developed world? Uh, sure. Um, I, I can a little bit. I actually have had the chance that I would recommend this to folks um, to do a little bit of international election monitoring, which is a terrific way to see how voting actually happens in other places. Um, I think, you know, we are not alone in our problems in the context of voting. I mean, many, many countries deal with the challenges that we do. And I would say, you know, even greater ones. Right. Um, that said, I think our expectation in this country is that we have a free and fair, open system of voting. And I think that people's sense of that is pierced periodically, including by what we're seeing in Georgia, for example. So we, we've talked a little bit about how voting is different in the state and local level. Can you can we talk sort of let's talk at a higher level, forgetting what just happened recently. What are, what are the um, primary ways in which what the what movements have you seen in terms of um, voting um, restrictions that that ultimately result in fewer votes? Voter ID is, for example, one of them. Sure. Voter ID is one. Um, I think the numbers show that um, voters of color are less likely to have a voter ID. <laughs> Lower income voters are less likely to have a, a voter ID. And I, I should be a little bit more specific. I think what we're really talking about is a photo ID, like a driver's license. There are issues for students. There are issues for voters with disabilities. There are issues um, for trans voters um, that photo ID present for those particular communities. But there's a host of other issues that election officials decide every day that make voting more or less accessible. Early voting is a good example of that. One of the things that gets a fair amount of attention is cuts to early vote. Um, communities of color are often finding themselves preferring voting early in person rather than voting by mail. And so what we see state after state after state are efforts to cut access to early vote. Um, another example is moving polling locations. Um, uh, in 2016 in North Carolina, uh, caddy boards of elections started closing early vote sites. And it just so happened that um, white voters only had to travel an extra, I think it was like 25 feet to get to their early vote site. Um, but voters of color would have to travel um, an extra quarter mile, right? And that doesn't sound like that much, but it starts to be a lot when you don't have access to a car or you have limited access to public transit. It's really important to look at this stuff in the broader context of how people live their lives. Well, absolutely. Those small things have a big difference. I mean, I think we all know that, you know, we might go to the coffee place that's 10 feet away instead of two blocks away, even though that doesn't have as good a coffee just because we're we're used to go. We, right. We want to save the time or, you know, uh, you'll have, you know, a, a new uh, a new um, Coke can will come out with a bigger lip or something just to make it so you consume more uh, soda. So that that stuff happens all the time. And I think with voting, you know, if your voting location is more or less convenient, that's going to impact on the margin um, whether or not you vote. Um, so let's talk a little bit about some of these more recent um, developments. So. You know, in 
the, let's start with, I guess, the first one. You know, in Florida, there was um, a lot of talk about how the hurricane that hit there would um, impact um, voting in um, in Florida, and there was efforts that were taken to uh, give some accommodation for that hurricane. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, um, there were some accommodations made, um, uh, including um, extending the voter registration deadline a little bit, and I'll talk about that more in just a minute. Also expanding opportunities to vote in person, um, some additional early voting opportunities in affected counties. But I want to be really clear that the state did not do nearly as much as it could have. And the group of civil rights advocates, us included uh, in Florida, um, asked the state to extend the voter registration deadline statewide and to do that not only for paper voter registration, but also for online voter registration. Because your state has online voter registration, it seems pretty sensible that if a big hurricane is coming and about to hit your state, that you would let voters impacted across the state register to vote in any way that they possibly can after they've fled their homes, left their documentation behind, um, and are now in a state of considerable uncertainty. Um, so, you know, I, I was disappointed to see that Florida didn't do more, um, but I frankly can't say I'm surprised. It is not a state that has the best record on voting rights. And more recently, um, Donald Trump had tweeted about voter fraud and his concerns about voter fraud. Um, that That's something, of course, early on in his presidency, he created a commission on voter fraud, which, from my perspective, appeared to be discredited and ultimately shut down before anything happened. It was led by a man named Chris Kobeck, and who's, uh, from, who's the Kansas Secretary of State, and I think has been a leader in taking efforts that ultimately result in fewer voters registered. Uh, I wonder if you could talk about this, the, the concern of, of, about voter fraud that's been raised by Republicans, including uh, Donald Trump. Sure. Um, the first thing I'll say is there is no widespread voter fraud. It is totally a myth, study after study, including a study by the U.S. Department of Justice under President Bush, like a five-year study. The idea of widespread voter fraud is a total bit. I've said it. I'm going to set it to the side now because people are going to believe what they're going to believe. And what we should be doing instead of fighting sort of, is this true? Is it not true? Let it go. The important thing to know is that we all agree that our system of voting should be secure, that it should be reliable, that we should all feel confident in the outcome of our election. And the good news is that there actually are lots of processes in place already to ensure that that's true. The idea that we vote or we register to vote in this like, you know, sort of wild west system where anybody can do whatever they want, totally untrue. When you register to vote, you have to provide documentation of your address, your signature verification, you bring a utility bill, you get correspondence from your city or county verifying where you live. There's so many checks along the way. And so, you know, for those here in the room, those listening, if you're in a back and forth with your uncle at Thanksgiving about voter fraud, I would not try and get like point by point, is it real, is it not? Focus instead on the fact that there are ample protections against people messing with the system in that kind of a way. 
So speaking of messing with the system, uh, you know, one related topic is the security of our electoral systems. Uh, there was an indictment that uh, was obtained by Robert Mueller earlier this year that talked about efforts by Russian operatives to infiltrate our electoral systems. And in my home state of Illinois, uh, we actually were the uh, state mentioned in that indictment. Uh, oh, around a half a million voter records were uh, stolen by the Russians. I I'm curious um, ha what the state is of the protection of our voting systems on the state by state level um, from your perspective. Yeah. I, here again, I would say, you know, some good news, which is that what happened in and around the 2016 election brought to the fore that this is a real threat to our democratic process. Um, and we are certainly in a better position than we were then in terms of security of our voter registration rolls and our voting equipment. States are increasingly moving towards paper-based voting systems, which is such a great way to ensure that people's votes are counting and counting in the way that they want, intend them to. Um, but is it, you know, are we as far as long as we should be? No. Do I hope we're further along by 2020? Yes, definitely. And I think we're trending in that direction. Yeah, I will say, you know, I, in my state, you know, I, I hear people sometimes saying, well, why are we so concerned about this issue? Why are you worried about voter security and election security? From my perspective, you know, what, what bothers me is there are people in that I talk to who are feel that their vote doesn't count, who are worried that the voting, get, the voter rolls get changed or worried that their votes get changed. And I think having increased security is in part an important way of ensuring people that their vote matters. Absolutely. And I think whether it's, you know, concerns about Russian interference or about um, the way that, you know, you, you know, does your vote by mail ballot count? And, what about my signature? Will it get here on time? What postage do I need? All of those questions at the heart of them is a concern that my voice is not going to get heard. And so advocates who work in the voting rights space, election officials, we should all of us be doing what we can to educate voters and also reassure them um, that their vote will count. Because although we're really here to talk about the problems in voter space, um, most people go and cast a ballot um, and do so without without a problem. But it's incredibly important that we focus on those challenges because, of course, they impact um, the very same people who've been impacted by um, threats to the right to vote for many, many years in this country. So we, uh, we talked a little bit earlier about the North Dakota rule that went into effect. Um, that was uh, essentially um, requiring street addresses. So can you explain to us how that rule came about and what impact you see uh, on voters in North Dakota? Yeah. So um, voter ID laws um, like this one um, um, have a particular impact on communities of color, as we were talking about before. And in North Dakota, as in Wisconsin, which is a state that we do a fair amount of work in, um, one of the issues that we see is that um, the kind of ID that's required um, creates particular problems for certain communities. And you all were talking about this in an absolutely right on way that um, um, Native American voters who live on reservations in North Dakota don't have traditional street addresses. And they are now required to have that um, so that they can meet the requirements for voting in their state. And there's absolutely no need for that. Um, there are plenty of other ways for Native American voters and all voters in North Dakota 
to show who they say they are. And this idea that it has to be tied to a specific type of street address is ridiculous. And time and time again, what we see is a very intentional effort to create a rule that, that in turn creates unique challenges for certain communities. You know, we'll see time and again, right, the old thing about how you can use your gun license to vote, but you can't use your student ID. I mean, what do we all think is going on there? <laughs> It is interesting because these are these are rules that on their face sound valid. You know, I, I you know, speak with Republicans will tell me, look, well, what's the problem with having a photo ID? It's ensuring that, that someone um, is who they say they are. But a lot of times the, the choice of ID or the choice of requirements that are on the ID have an impact. And really, in that case, you know, Native Americans uh, comprise a significant portion of North Dakota's population, and they often are very highly impacted by the federal government and federal government programs. Their voice uh, in Congress could make a very significant difference for that state. Um, let's all, let's turn now to sort of the most recent development. Just a, just a couple days ago, um, this this um, this uh, news that fifty three thousand people were removed from the rolls in Georgia by the Secretary of State's office. He himself being a candidate for governor. How did that come about? Um, and can you explain to us sort of how the exact match law works and its impact? Yes. Um, the first thing I want to say, actually, about this 53,000 voters that have been getting, and rightfully, a lot of attention, is that these folks can actually still vote. They're not, they're in what's called a pending status. They're basically in limbo. And so what that means is that if they show up to vote, if they have their photo ID, they will be able to cast the ballot. That counts. If you are one of these 53,000 voters and you are listening to this podcast, I would encourage you to go vote and bring your ID if there's any kind of issue, you'll get a provisional ballot and you can just follow up with the ID that you need after election day. So I really it's so important to be reassuring to folks because these are actually people who can still cast a ballot on election day. That said, the story here is that um, Georgia has a very aggressive process for matching voters information to the voter rolls. And you all described it really well. The top of the hour, which is that um, it's known as an exact match law. And it means that if I use different variations of my name, if I hyphenate, if I don't hyphenate, sometimes if I use my middle name, sometimes, but not at other times, that could be a basis for putting me, either removing me from the rolls or in, in the instance of these 53,000 people, putting me into this limbo status. And, you know, these are very arbitrary decisions, right? Like, you know, sometimes I use my middle name and sometimes I don't. And that's arbitrary. That's an arbitrary decision by me. Right. But it's also an arbitrary decision by an election official to make a decision about whether my name that I'm saying to them at the polling location is really my name for those listening. I'm using air quotes. Um, and that's, you know, that is the way we see this stuff operate time and again. I mean, these are sort of like they seem so bureaucratic, but at the end of the day, what we're talking about is somebody's right to vote. And that should not hinge on whether I decided to use my middle name on a given day. So recently uh, there was a Republican pollster who I think made a bold claim on Twitter I thought was very interesting. And he said that in his view, not only voter fraud, which you've already talked about, but in his view, voter suppression really does not have a significant impact on voting results. 
And I'm interested in your reaction to that, but I will say my reaction before you you chime in is that it doesn't really matter to me. You know, and from my perspective, regardless of whether or not voter suppression has an impact on the results, what matters to me uh, is that people have the right to vote, first of all, and second of all, that they believe and are firm that they are part of our national identity and that they are citizens and that their voice matters. And when a group is told that they're not able to vote or made it's made more difficult for them to participate, they're essentially being told that their voice in the process is irrelevant and it doesn't matter. I'm curious about your perspective. I, I totally agree, obviously. I mean, <laughs> how could I disagree? It's totally, totally right that, you know, people ask me this all the time. Would you think that this rule was put into place to make it harder for African-Americans to cast a ballot? Maybe, actually, it may have been. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter because if that is the effect that it has, then that is not a law that we should have in this country. And people in this country, I mean, in 2016, over a million people, a million, one million people could not vote because the line was too long at their polling location. They didn't have the right kind of ID. They requested a mail ballot and it never came. These are people who want to make their voices heard. And these kinds of bureaucratic problems that we're talking about stop them from making their voices heard. And it's, it's just not right. Yeah, it's worth noting that the, the percentage of people who didn't vote is higher than the percentage of people who voted for Trump or Clinton in the last election. And that just shows you there's a huge mass of people out there. We can, you know, people who listen to, to this podcast are people who are very interested in what's going on. Um, but there's a lot of people who, you know, they're, they're less engaged. They're not going to spend many hours chasing down whether or not they're registered and how they can vote. Um, but their voices deserve to be heard just as much as yours. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. Until next time, let's stay on topic. 